So we're beginning the season of Advent, and the, the word Advent literally means arrival or coming. And so in this season, uh, what we're doing is we're, we're remembering that time in history where God came down, where God arrived on this earth to redeem us in the person of Jesus. And so we celebrate the time when Jesus came down into our world. And I want to begin today by asking the question, why did Jesus come down? Right? Advent is about the coming of God down into our world. I want to ask the question, why did God come? Why did Jesus come? Well, there's a few answers you can give to that question. Uh, number one, he came to reveal God to us. Right? So Jesus came down into the world to show us what God is like. In fact, there's one scripture that says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus reveals what God is like. And so when someone looked at Jesus, they were looking at, at God himself. He was divine and human person. He also came to teach us. And so Jesus taught a lot. He Sermon on the Mount, you know, parables. Uh, and, and so another reason why he came is to teach us the way, the way of God, the way of discipleship, uh, the way to live in this world. But I think the most fundamental reason why Jesus came down, why God came down in the person of Jesus, is to rescue us from the power and dominion of sin. And so uh, today we're going to begin by, uh, we're going to prepare ourselves for Advent by thinking about, by reflecting on this idea of the power and dominion, the gravity of this thing called sin. Now, whenever I think about sin, I think of a little story of a man who went to church one Sunday. His wife was sick, and so she stayed at home in bed. And so he went, went to church, and, and uh, he, he came home afterwards, and his wife said, uh, what did, this, what did the, the preacher uh, talk about today? What was his sermon about? And the man said, well, um, I think he talked about sin. And she said, well, what did he say about sin? And the man thought, and he responded, I think he was against it. And I think we run the risk there of almost, uh, you know, becoming dull to this idea of sin. It's such a broad topic. It's such a general idea. But what is this idea of sin? And I think especially it's hard in our culture because, because the, the word sin has fallen out of vogue in our vocabulary, right? So years ago, Christians hated sin. We feared it. We fled from it. We grieved over it. Many of our forefathers even agonized over our sin. But today, sin finds its home mostly on dessert menus, right? So the other day, I had some sinfully delicious chocolate ice cream, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a name we often label on high-end chocolate truffles. And so the word sin has sort of been repurposed to sort of uh, to describe a naughty pleasure that's sort of fun, but we know we shouldn't be doing it, like chocolate ice cream, right? Uh, high-end truffles, it's a dusty word, it's an old word, and in some ways it's almost become uh, something that we use tongue-in-cheek, and so I think of the church lady on Saturday Night Live wagging her finger at us and talking about sin. Uh, People Magazine did a poll rec uh, recently where they, uh, they did this survey uh, asking people about the subject of sin, and they developed a sin dex, which was a list of sins uh, listed from really bad ones to ones that weren't so bad. And uh, the sins that made the top of the list were, it was no surprise, things like murder and uh, cheating and lying, things like that. At the bottom of the list were smoking and swearing and gambling. There were some surprises, and so uh, parking in a, in a handicapped spot was rated surprisingly high on the list there. Uh, uh, cutting in line was actually rated higher than divorce or capital punishment. 
But overall, the readers said that probably they commit, on average, 4.64 sins per month. And so for us, yeah, <laughs> some of you are like, I, I commit that many in, in, an, in an hour. <laughs> but for us, you know, sin, it's, you know, it's on dessert menus. Sin, it's not really considered that big of a problem, really. Not something we think about on a day-by-day. Certainly not something we agonize over or, or you know, wring our hands about. But the Bible uh, has a different view of sin. When the Bible talks about sin, it sees it as our most basic problem. And so today, uh, what I want to do is look at this little, uh, these verses here in Isaiah 64. And Isaiah 64, it's, uh, it's, it's in, like I said, it's in the lectionary. This is a traditional Advent reading. It's a prayer, a prophetic prayer about the coming of, of God into the world. There are, there are these prayers all the way through uh, Isaiah and the prophets and the Psalms where they're praying and anticipating and asking God to come down into the world. It's an Advent prayer. But it is also one of the most penetrating descriptions of sin that we have in all the Bible. And it connects this idea of sin to the coming of God, or sin to Advent. And the point I think it's making is that you will never understand Christmas, you will never understand Advent, you will never understand why God had to come down into the world until you understand something of the gravity of sin. And so as we look at this psalm, what I want to do is see three things about sin. I think it teaches us three things about about sin. Uh, Number one, it teaches us about the breadth of sin or how broad sin is. It also teaches us about the depth of sin, how deep it is. And then finally, it teaches us how Advent is the cure for sin. So three things in this little psalm, the breadth of sin, the depths of sin, and finally the cure for sin. So first, let's look here at at the breadth of our sin. And notice in Psalm, uh, on Isaiah 64, he begins by saying, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So again, this is a prayer for God to come down, to enter into the world. God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and that you would come down. And why does he want God to come down? Well, think here, uh, you know, think of judgment. Think here of, uh, like, when God came down during the exodus on, on the Egyptians. You know, God came down, and there was fire and brimstones and plagues and and frogs and hail falling from the sky. God, come down, he says, that the mountains would quake at your presence, verse 1, as when fire kindles brushwood, when the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. So he's saying, God, come down. Oh, rend the heavens and come down into the world, just like you did way back in the Exodus, just like you did to all of our enemies. Come now and send your judgment on all of those bad people out there, on all of our enemies. God, Punish our adversaries, the people that are against us. This is what he's asking for. Then he goes on in verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, nor I I has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in their ways. We'll stop there. So he's saying, God, I want you to rend the heavens. I want you to come down. Why? So that you could bring judgment and wrath on all of our enemies. Because, he says, why should you do this for us? He says, because you are a God who delivers and rescues those who wait for you. When you think about this word wait for you, he's saying you deliver those who, who exercise patient, confident, expectant, expectant faith. Those who have a habitual attitude of waiting for God. 
God, come down and judge because you always save those who wait for you, who are always confident and faithful and looking for you. And he says, God, we want you to come down because, because you always meet with those who joyfully work righteousness. He says, because you always save those people that are joyfully and always doing the things that are right. God, we want you to come down because you always come and you act on behalf of those people who it says, remember your ways, who are always remembering your ways. So God, come down to judge because you always judge on behalf of those who are righteous, who do good all the time, who are always righteous. But then he comes, the, the, the author here, he comes to a shocking little uh, realization here. Oh, there's almost a pause. God, come and act because you always act on behalf of those people that are righteous, on those people that are good. But then he says, behold, you were angry because we have sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? So here's, this is what's going on. God, oh God, rend the heavens and come down and save us because you always save the righteous. Wait a minute. We're not very righteous. God, we've sinned and we haven't just sinned once or twice. We've sinned for a long time. Should we be saved? Should you even deliver us, God? What this man is coming to is he's coming to a realization of the breadth of sin. This is our first point. And what he's realizing, he's he's saying, look, God, you know, you've got enemies out there. There are bad people out there, and so come down with your fire. But then he says, if God comes down with his judgment and his wrath and his fire, what's going to keep us from being consumed? This man is coming to the conclusion that sin is not something out there among all of God's enemies. Sin is also something that is in his own heart. And so he pauses and he says, God, do I even want you to come with your wrath? Because if you do, what's going to keep you from consuming, consuming me? He's coming to the conclusion that he has got a problem with sin. And this is a very important conclusion to, to come to. You see, a lot of times this is what we do about sin. We, we, we kind of draw a line and we say, look, there are good people and bad people in the world, right? There are bad people out there and uh, God judges those people and there they are, you know, the terrorists and the wicked people and these, these people out there. And then there's, there's the good people. And we always put ourselves in the good people camp, don't we? But here what this man is realizing is that this is not the way... God divides the world. When God, looks, when God looks down at the world, he sees a people that are in solidarity in their sin. All of us are sinful. All of us are broken. All of us, he begins to realize, deserves God's wrath. It was uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was, a, um, he was a Jewish philosopher. He was in the concentration camps in Germany. You know, he experienced evil firsthand but, but at the hands of the Nazis, and it was awful. And when he came out of there, he began to realize uh, that sin was, was not something that was just in the Nazis. And this is what he said. He said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But then he says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? 
You see, here's the Christian faith. The Christian faith makes the declaration that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this means your enemies, the people that are different from you, but it also means that every single one of us are broken. Every single one of us is on the wrong side of God's wrath. This is a point that Paul, that's made all the way through the Bible, but in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the evil Gentile world, these people that are, you know, rolling in the streets and committing, you know, sexual debauchery and doing all these horrible things. And then he turns from the, the evil pagan Gentiles and he looks at the religious Jew and he says, and who are you, O Jew? Do you think that you are better than them? Do you think you're any better? He says, you who think you're better, you do the same things. And he begins to describe how the Jewish people have broken their own law. Until in Romans 3, Paul says, look, all have sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's glory, both Jew and Gentile. No matter who you are, you are guilty. This is the breadth of sin. Every, the Christianity says there's not good and bad people. We are all bad people. And this is why if you are sitting here today and you're, and you're wringing your hands over your own sinfulness, if you're saying, look, I don't even deserve to be here. What am I doing sitting in a church this morning? You're actually in a better place than you think. You know, people come to me sometimes as a pastor, and as a pastor, people often feel very free to confess. People come to me when they've messed up, usually. That's when I see people want to talk to me. And they always come and, oh my gosh, I never thought I was this bad, but I did this thing, I never thought I would do it. And I always look at them and I say, you know what? It's actually a good sign. Not that you've sinned, but a good sign that you understand that you've sinned. Because the vast majority of us are in the dark and we self-justify and we think we're okay. But when you realize that you're not okay, then you're in the best place possible. When people get close to God, one of the first things that happens is they realize how sinful they are. Sin's not just out there, it's also here as well. Do you remember in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah uh, came into the temple, he came to church, and, and just like many of us, the last person he expected to see when he came to church, the last person he expected to meet when he came to church was God. <laughs> but he goes into the temple and he meets God. God is high and lifted up and his train of his robe filled the temple. And he sees God, and what is the first thing he says afterwards? Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. You see, if you're becoming aware of your own sin, if you're coming to the conclusion, if you're becoming aware of the breadth of sin, that it's not only out there but also in here, you're actually closer to God than you think. It's when you start thinking, I'm okay. It's when you start thinking, hey, the problem is out there. It's when you start thinking, hey, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good Joe. God, God picked a good, a good apple when he got me. Then you're in trouble. Because Cornelius Plantinga says this. He says, self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and, and distorting suppression of our spiritual nervous system. So, so many of us, where we deceive ourselves about our own sin. But here this man, he, he has a moment of clarity. He sees that sin is not just among his enemies, but he himself is in danger. And he's closer to God than he thinks. This is a good place to be in. Being nervous about your sin is actually a good sign. That you're getting to the breadth 
of your problem. There's this cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody read Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon? It's an old one. There's this one of my favorites. Uh, Calvin, he says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes looks at him and says, well, are you worried that you might not have been good? And Calvin says, that's just a question, isn't it? It's all relative. What's Santa's definition anyway? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any, any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Would you, wouldn't you say that that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should probably get a lot of presents? And Hobbes wisely responds, but maybe good is more than simply the absence of bad. To which Calvin responds, see, that's what worries me. Are you worried today? Are you aware that you are a broken person? Are you painfully aware of all the ways that you have sinned or fallen short of the glory of God? You see, sin is not just defined by, com- by comparing yourself favorably to other people. You know, by doing that, you come off as a pretty good person sometimes. But sin is defined by comparing yourself to God's glory. And when a person gets a glimpse of that, when you understand that, then you come away saying, woe is me. I am undone. And this is what he's saying here. He's talking about the breadth of sin. It's not just there, it's in here. It permeates all of us. A Christian is somebody who, who should be very humble, right? You know, we as Christians, we're not people who say, look, we're Christians, we're the good people, and they're the bad people. Christians say we're, we're all broken. We're all bad people. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. This is the breadth of sin. But let's move on and we'll see the second point. He, said, he not only realizes the, the breadth of the problem, it's, it's all of us, all of us have sinned, he, but he begins to realize the depth of the problem. And here's what I want you to see here as he moves on. He says in verse 5, Behold, you were angry and we have sinned. In all our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? Shall we be saved? But then he goes on and talks about the breadth of the, the depth of the problem. He says, we have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So here he's talking about the depth of sin. And what he says here, he says, he's, he's saying, look, he's saying, look, uh, sin, we've all sinned, and it's not just that our sins are a surface-level problem. Like, sin is almost like a dust that we could just dust off the top of our life. He said, our, we've all sinned, and our sin is a deep, deep problem. It goes to our very core. And it's something that's beyond our own ability to change ourselves. You know, I think about that old, you know, the Christmas song about, um, he knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows when you've been bad or good. You know that, that old song about Santa Claus? What a great little song that, to uh, manipulate and control your children, right? <laughs> oh, he sees you. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. You know, putting fear in the heart of your little children. And then it says, so be good for goodness sake. It's almost, so all you need to do is just stop doing bad things and start doing good things. 
He sees you all the time, and so and a lot of t- times this is the way we think about God. He sees us, he knows us, and so stop doing bad and start doing good. If you attempt that, you begin to realize that your, your, bad, your badness is deeper than you think. You can't just stop doing bad that easily. And that's exactly what the point this man is. He's saying, we've sinned, and then he goes on and he says, he says, look, our sins, we, in our sins, we be, in verse 6, we become like one who is unclean. Now, in, in the Jewish world, in the ceremonial law, there were things that were unclean. And uh, these were things that were uh, just at their core completely defiled before God. And there were even people that became unclean for various reasons. For example, leprosy. If someone had leprosy, they were unclean. And for an unclean person, everything they touched became defiled. And so if you're a leper and you touched, uh, you know, a, a vessel, you know, some uh, canteen or something, that vessel would become unclean. Nobody else could drink out of it. Or if you sat on a bed or a couch, that, the thing that you sat on, the, the, the chair that you sat on would itself become unclean. Everything you touched become, became unclean. In fact, you were so unclean that nobody wanted to touch you. You were corrupt. You were defiled, and people avoided you. In fact, if you were a leper, you had to yell out if somebody came near, unclean, unclean. And what this man is saying is that our sin is a little bit like that leprosy. It's almost like a contagious disease. It's bred in our bone. It it runs deep. It's not just something we can stop easily, like I can stop doing good things and start doing bad or. That was backwards, wasn't it? Stop doing bad things and start doing good things. This, this sin that we have is bred in the bone. It, bear, it goes deep. As Jesus talked about, a tree and its roots are bad, and therefore it produces bad fruit. And so think about sin less as a group of things that you do and more like a condition that you're in. There's one scholar who says that we all, always should capitalize the word sin because it's a dominion, it's a power that we're under. And if, you're, if you've ever been addicted to a substance, you know what this is like, you wanna stop and you can't. Sin has a power over you. It's something that you're under. He says this is what it's like, it's like being unclean, and then he goes on and he says, he says, he says even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And the word, uh, polluted garment is filthy rags or literally he says our, even our righteous deeds are like menstrual garments. Here he's talking about the depth of human sin. He says your sin is so bad it's deep inside of your, the core of who you are. And even the good things that you do are all tainted by, by depravity. He says even my righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even the best things I do are all twisted by and tainted by my bad motives and my sin. I remember being in uh, college when I was younger, a Bible college, and um, you know, it was, uh, and I would sing worship, and sometimes I would lift my hands in worship. But I noticed that whenever the the president of the school would come by, he was this man that I really admired. He was a great preacher. Whenever he would come and sit behind me, my hands would raise. And even their singing, I would think to myself, even my righteous deeds are all twisted around with bad motives. Maybe you've been there. Even the best works, even the best things that you do, if you begin to analyze them and look at them, you start seeing that even those things are, you know, the heart is deceitfully wicked. 
Who can know it? It's a deep pit. And then he says, uh, you know, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities are like the wind and they take us away. He even says that you've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So here's, get this picture. This is the depth of sin. Sin is like quicksand and we're all sinking in it. And then he goes so far as to say, we're all sinking in this quicksand of our sin, and no one even reaches out to God for help. Nobody seeks God. Nobody reaches out for God. We're, we're sinking in our sin, and we don't even know it. That's our condition. Am I depressing you yet? <laughs> but he says, this is where we are, and if you're ever going to appreciate Advent, you've got to come to grips with this. And maybe some of you already have. You're, you're realizing, you know, it's not just that I do bad things sometimes. It's that I'm, I seem to be stuck. Even my best deeds seem to be permeated with, with ill motives. My heart is deceitfully wicked. I lie to myself. Self-deception, all of that stuff, I'm twisted and it goes deep. It's bread in the bone. And you get, there was one point where Paul the Apostle, it's in one of his writings where he says, the things that I want to do, those are the things that I don't do. And the things that I don't do, those that don't want to do, I end up doing those things. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? These are the words of a man who's come to grips with the depth of his problem. Are you there? Is there any hope? There's a, a woman, her name, her name is Beatrice Webb, and she was one of the architects of the modern British welfare system. Uh, she, she founded the London School of Economics. Uh, she was a socialist, an activist. She uh, worked for education and uh, you know, welfare and, and pulling people out of poverty. And at one point, she had this diary. At one point in her diary, at the very beginning of her idealistic you know, work in, in, in uh, social welfare, she says this, this is in 1890. She said, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. I've staked everything on the essential goodness of the human nature. Oh, human beings, we're going to do it. We can make it. And then later on in her diary, she had this diary all the way through her life. Later on towards the end of her life, there's another entry. It's in 1925. And this is what she says. She says, now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power, and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? She's making the same statement as the psalmist. She's, she's beginning to see that sin seems to be more like a dominion than a set of actions that we do. There's a power, there's a, there, there's a hold on us, human beings, that runs deep. And the Bible says this is the depth of something called sin. And this is why you do the things you don't want to do. This is why you keep on going back to the bottle. This is why you keep on going back to the abusive boyfriend. This is why you keep on going back to the drugs and, and the addictions. This is why you keep on doing the things you don't want to do. Sin, capital S. It's bread in the bone. And you are bent away from God. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way. She says, where does she say it? She says it this way. To be in sin, 
means something much more than consequen- and consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from, from God's heavenly banquet. It means to be helplessly trapped inside one's own worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. And maybe some of you feel that way this morning, hopelessly trapped inside your worst self. If you're coming to that realization this morning, if you're saying, yes, that's me, I feel it, I know that, you're better off than you think you are. You're right where God wants you to be. Because then you're ready to to understand the good news of Advent. Because here's the good news of Advent. This is the cure for our sin. This is the final point. And and he gets here, and and notice he, he gets to the point, and he says, look, he says, we are melting in the hand of our iniquities, verse seven. And we're hopeless. We can't help ourselves. We're trapped in our own worst selves. What do we do? Well, there's two things that he could do at this point. He could just say, look, remember my prayer at the very beginning, God, rend the heavens and come down, forget that, (laughs) stay up there, God. Um, uh, You help the righteous, I am obviously not righteous, Uh, I'll just walk away, you know, and, and God will stay up there and I'll stay down here, end of prayer, end of story. Me and God will go our separate ways. He could, he could do that. But this is no way forward, is it? Because there's a tension here. We need God. We need God to rend the heavens. We need God to come down. We need God in our lives. And yet if God does come down, we're in trouble because we're sinful and we're broken and we're messed up. And so we need God to come down, but, God, but we can't have God come down. There's a tension here. Do you see it? But there's also a tension in God because, you see, God is up there. What is God doing? God's up there, and he looks down at our sin, and he's angry. He is rightfully angry at our depravity, at the depth and the breadth of our sin. But here's the tension. He also loves us. He's angry and he sees your brokenness, but he also loves you. It's kind of, you know, as every parent knows this, you know, you look down at your kid and, you know, yesterday my kid was having a really bad day and he was acting out and he was screaming and he actually came and attacked his brother and I came out to him and I said, why, you take after your mother. Um, (laughs) What's wrong with you? No, I I looked at him, and I was so angry at what he did, and I I was just white, and I was just so angry, but I also was, you know, I was brokenhearted. Why? Because I love my son, right? And this is how God feels as he looks down on us. He's brokenhearted by our sin. He's angry at our sin, but he loves us. That's God's problem. He loves us too much, isn't it? to leave us where we are. And so what does God do? Well, let's look at what this man does. He, he gets to the end of his rope, and then he says this in verse eight, but, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. What is he doing here? 
He's come to the, the depth of the knowledge of his, the breadth of sin, the, the, what am I saying? The breadth, the depth of sin. What do we do? And then he appeals to God's love. And he appeals to both the depth and the breadth of God's love. He says, God, look at the depth of your love. He calls God two things. God is our father and our potter. Do you see that? So personal. He says, oh, Lord, you are our father and you are our potter. This is verse 8. God, you see us sin, but we're your creation. You made us. We're your work of art. Not only that, you're our father. You love us. Our sin breaks your heart. He says, that's not just true of some of us. He says, we are all. Notice he says that, uh, this all word. He says, we are all your people. You've made everyone. God, we're so sinful, but but you love us. And so what is the solution to our sin? Well, well God's, God's love is, is greater than our sin. And it moves God to come down into this world, but not to come down to enact judgment, to come down in the person of Jesus and to pull us out. There's two points in the life of Jesus where the heavens are opened. Do you remember what they are? Buddy? You can yell it out if you want to. The baptism of Jesus. You remember Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the waters. The heavens are opened and there's a voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the only one who when the heavens open, instead of wrath coming down, there is my beloved son. I'm here to rescue you. He's the only one who deserved that yes when the heavens opened. But then you remember there's another place where the heavens opened. Do you remember when that was? Man, that's another one. That's not the one I'm thinking one. There's actually three. <laughs> Maybe there's more. I shouldn't even ask this question anymore. No, nobody answers any more questions here. Uh, it's at the end. It's at the very end. Do you remember the heavens opened on the cross? where the wrath of God came down on Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was the only one who deserved God's yes. And here the heavens open and he gets God's no. This is God's love. The only one who deserves God's yes received God's punishment. So that all of us who deserve God's punishment can receive God's yes. And this is the message of Advent. God is your father and God is your potter. Yes, you are sinful. Yes, you are broken. Realize that you're closer than you think. Then you're ready to reach out and say, God, come down. Come down and save me. Come down and pull me out. And the good news of the gospel is that he not only forgives your iniquities, but he also shapes you and molds you like a potter shapes the clay. And he could make you into something beautiful. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Uh, This passage about uh, the depth of sin and, Lord, you've brought us low into this bad news, but, God, this, this is really necessary for us to really understand what's going on in Advent. You are rending the heavens and you are coming down in the person of Jesus to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. God, our sin is deep, but your love is deeper still. God, the gospel says that although we are more sinful than we ever imagined, we are more loved and valued in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. 
And so we pray, pray that you would give us the ability to dare to hope this morning. God, for those of us who are deeply aware of our sin, I pray that we would grab onto the good news that we are accepted in you, that we are rescued in you. God, that you, you come in from the outside to pull us out of, of that which we can't pull ourselves out of. And, and Lord, those of us who are unaware of our own need, God, I pray that you would shock us, that you would open our eyes so that we would see that we have all sinned. That every single one of us needs, needs you to come down. Lord, help us to see how desperately we need you. Give us that gift, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.